I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to make a prediction. The end is near. Now, I'm not necessarily referring to the end times per se, although that's possible. I'm more referring to our study through the Olivet Discourse. I promise. After three weeks, this being our fourth, through Mark chapter 13, the end is near. This morning, we're going to be finishing up a sermon that Jesus taught to the disciples known as historically the Olivet Discourse. It's a conversation Jesus has with the disciples built off of a singular question the disciples asked. That question is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus begins, he starts this sermon by explaining what he defines as the beginning of sorrows. A great deceiver will rise to power. Though the spirit of Antichrist has existed throughout the world, it will manifest itself into a singular soul individual who will deceive the world. He will promise peace. And though peace might exist for a time, it will be followed by a great war. As Jesus mentioned, from this war would follow an economic crisis, inflation, famine, pestilence. The first three and a half years of what Daniel defines as the 70th week or seven years of tribulation will be fierce. John, in Revelation 6, summarizes this first three and a half years by saying that a quarter of the earth's population will die. So following the beginning of sorrows, which is fierce in and of itself, Jesus then transitions by explaining the sign that will trigger the beginning of the end. At the three and a half year mark, as we discussed last Sunday, the Antichrist will enter the temple, this newly constructed place of worship for the Jews, and he will commit what Daniel defines as the abomination of desolation, or literally an abomination which brings about desolation. For what follows this one event, two things will occur. A mass exodus from Judea will ensue, where the Jews flee from the wrath of the Antichrist. And an even greater tribulation will follow. Read through the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments in the latter half of the book of Revelation. And you will see as Jesus defines himself that if he didn't intervene, no flesh would possibly survive. This one event triggers the full wrath of God. And Jesus says, and I love this passage, that after this tribulation, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Imagine the stars falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then Jesus tells the disciples that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest parts of the earth and the furthest parts of heaven. During these seven years, we find that creation, initially groaning for its maker, begins to scream out as things build to one final crescendo, where Jesus himself, he returns. He returns to the Mount of Olives, and he destroys the armies of the Antichrist. He restores a broken and fragile planet. He binds Satan in the bottomless pit and establishes a reign of peace for a thousand years on the earth. 
And with that being said, verse 28, Jesus tells the disciples to learn from the parable of the fig tree. For when its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it's near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, the first thing that we should mention concerning these verses is that Jesus is transitioning his sermon to a final conclusion. This word, now, now learn this parable. It's the Greek conjunction, day, which literally means, but, moreover, nevertheless, yet, then. As a matter of fact, Luke's account in Luke 21 of the Sermon on the Mount, getting to the same juncture in the sermon, he actually helps with the transition. Let me read what Luke says in chapter 21, verse 28. He says, now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. Then, Jesus spoke to them with a parable. A clear transition is occurring in verse 28 towards a conclusion. He's finished discussing the tribulational period, the end of the age. He's finished discussing or answering or providing the sign that will mark the end. He's even go so far as to describe his future coming where he establishes his kingdom. He's answered their question. And as any good preacher... And as any good sermon, Jesus will conclude with a benediction that will contain a specific exhortation and application for the disciples. As a matter of fact, the Olivet Discourse is used in many Bible curriculums as the prototype of the way to teach. Provide your points, establish your thesis. And then when you get to the end, as you conclude, leave people with something they can grab hold of, something they can sink their teeth into, something that when they leave, they can apply. So Jesus, as we should mention, is concluding his sermon. That's the first thing. The second thing we should note is the context for his application. The context is the fig tree. He says it himself, doesn't he? Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now the Old Testament presents the fig tree as a picture, a type of the nation of Israel. There are many passages. I'll just give you two to validate the point. Judges 9, verses 10 and 11. We're told that then the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over trees? Obviously, this presenting a picture of Israel ruling over the nations there in Canaan. Hosea 9, verses 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw you fathers as the first fruits of the fig tree in its season. You will find this picture of Israel being the fig tree littered all throughout Old Testament imagery. And Jesus, as we've already noted, reinforces this typological picture in Mark chapter 11. Now we're not gonna go into this in great details, but Jesus curses the fig tree. And in doing so, he's directly condemning the religious hypocrisy of Israel. 
Israel had been advertising spiritual fruit it didn't possess. She had presented an outward image of holiness, but Israel, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, they lacked true substance. So Jesus cursed her. And the results of this curse can be found, it can be seen as being fulfilled ultimately in Jerusalem and Israel's destruction by Rome in the first century. Now, because Israel's ultimate refusal manifested itself and the rejection of their Messiah, that being Jesus, God used the Romans to enact divine retribution. Israel, as Paul discusses in multiple places, it ceased to be God turns his attention to the church. God's involvement with the Jewish people, it gave way to a phrase that even Jesus uses in the sermon uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's account as the time of the Gentiles. And yet, from this prophecy given by Jesus about the fig tree, what's he saying? It seems that we can reach a logical conclusion that Jesus presents the reemergence of Israel as being a main indicator that everything he's previously discussed would soon be taking place. With that in mind, look at verse 28 again. Now learn this parable from the fig tree or the children of Israel or the nation of Israel. It's already been cursed, but then he says, when its branch becomes tender, puts forth leaves, this process of it going from being dormant to now being alive again, you know that what? Summer is near. You also, that when you see these things happening, what things? Not the things he's previously referenced, but the budding of the fig tree, know that its door, uh, that it's near, that its door is approaching. It would appear from this passage that Jesus is telling the disciples that when they see Israel blossom again onto the world scene, it and it alone should serve as a sign that tribulational period would soon be following. This idea of the nation of Israel re-emerging onto the world scene, it was foretold not just by Jesus in this passage, but this passage seems to be consistent with other passages in the Old Testament that also yields a similar prediction. Ezekiel 37 is a, an entire fascinating prophecy of these dry bones retaking flesh and tendons and muscles and coming back alive and, and defining what Ezekiel's seeing, he says that it's the people of God. After being dead for so long, they become a people again. Zechariah 8, Isaiah 51, the worldwide return of the Jews to their homeland is something that the Old Testament prophets saw. You should note that the rebirth of Israel is not only important for its purely historical significance, but it's important because it indicates a transitioning, a soon transitioning of the prophetic timeline off of the church and back on to Israel. 70 AD occurs, the whole pendulum swings off of the Jewish people onto the times of the Gentiles, the church age. But when Israel comes back, it should be an indicator that prophetically this switch is about to take place back the other direction. The church will be removed. God's attention goes back to the Hebrew people. For 1,000, 
878 years. Beginning with the Roman invasion in 70 AD, the Jewish people have existed without a homeland. They've only resided in isolated communities throughout the Middle East and most of Europe. One can truly say, prophetically, that the fig tree lay in complete dormancy. And yet, on November 2nd, 1917, the roots of this dormant fig tree began to take in nutrients. There was no sign that it was alive quite yet. No leaves. The branches aren't tender, but the roots begin for the first time to take in nutrients. When the UK's Foreign Secretary, Arthur James Balfour, issued an important declaration permitting the formation of a Jewish state. We know this declaration as the Balfour Declaration. Now, sadly, because of mounting political pressure, opposition directly before and after World War II, the British in many ways reneged on their promises to the Jewish people by prohibiting, drastically prohibiting, the amount of Jews they would allow to immigrate back to their homeland. Now, following World War II and the revelations of the Nazi Holocaust, this incredible persecution of the Jewish people, and in part with large United States support, In 1947, the United Nations proposed the establishment of both an Arab and Jewish state in Palestine. On May 14, 1948, two events perfectly aligned. First, England lifted their naval blockades, effectively ending their mandated restriction of the number of Jewish immigrants from Europe to Palestine. Secondly, the United Nations officially proclaimed a newly formed state of Israel. May 14, 1948, the fig tree blossomed. Now, one day later, one could have assumed that the tree would have been cut into the ground because this newly formed state was immediately invaded by five surrounding Arab countries. It launched a year-long war of independence. No one really gave Israel much of a chance of surviving, but she did. Not only did she survive, but she took territory. In July 1949, Israel signed an armistice agreement with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, ending the war, forming the first Knesset, with Israel then being admitted to the United Nations as the 59th member. The fig tree budding. But here's the thing. Israel, even at this point, their capital city still wasn't Jerusalem. And and gaining territory and gaining turf and gaining independence, trying to gain the goodwill and favor of the nations that hate them around them, they entered an agreement splitting the control of Jerusalem. But in 1967, Israel was attacked again by the Arabs in what was called the Six-Day War. Israel not only survived against mounting odds, but they gained even more territory, resulting in the final unification of Jerusalem under total Israeli control. Now, the history, the timeline, this plays an important role, as we'll see in a moment. Now, though most pre-tribulationalists and pre-millennialists agree with the significance of the reemergence of Israel from the ashes of history, The biggest hang-up people have 
with the verses that, that we're looking at doesn't really come from the first half of these verses discussing the budding of the fig tree, but rather the biggest confusion, debate, and, and to be very honest, somewhat uh, ill-advised application comes from the second half. Assuredly, I say to you what Jesus says. This generation, so following the budding of the fig tree, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, over the last 60 years, since Israel became a state again, there have been many well-intentioned pastors and biblical scholars, many of which find themselves in the Calvary Chapel movement, who have seen this verse as validation that the generation that sees with their own eyes the formation of, of, of Israel will be alive to also see the rapture and tribulation. Now, since the formation of Israel is a fact of history occurring in 1948, this has led many really good, solid Bible teachers to do something stupid, and that is make predictions as to the tribulation and the rapture. Let me explain how this happens. First, you interpret generation as, well, as many of us would say generation. Like you have my parents' generation. It's kind of defined as a collective age group of people. Generation X and generation Y define beginning and ending point. And so they see it as an age group of people so that in 1948 it starts and that that generation that sees Israel bud will be alive to see the end time scenario unfold. That's how they interpret what Jesus is saying. Now, the big question that these scholars have wrestled with is with that in mind, how do you biblically then define the number of years that a generation would be? Because what, if you can define the number of years, then what can you do? You can go from 1948, you can extrapolate this out. You can say when the, the, the tribulation will begin, when Jesus will come, when these things will come to pass, and then you can work it backwards seven years and you can come up with a rapture and you can write books about it. Let me give you an example. In the 70s, there were many that concluded biblically that a generation consisted of 40 years. Now, how they reached that particular understanding, I'm not 100% sure. Even reading some of their books and some of the articles written on how they reached that conclusion, it's anybody's guess. But really good, solid Bible teachers concluded 40 years, which meant what? Well, if you take 1948, you add 40 years to it, Jesus' second coming would happen when? Come on, Math. 40 years, 1948. Well, it would happen in 1988. So, so the end of the world, Armageddon, Jesus' return, all of that would happen on 1988, which means that you could extrapolate that backwards, subtract seven, and conclude that the rapture would have to happen by 1981. So the rapture will happen in 1981. The tribulation will happen in 1988. And there were many quality pastors saying these things from the pulpit. Now, I'm going to address something here, because if you Google Calvary Chapel, you will find admittedly a stain, I think, on the movement. In 1978, Calvary Chapel's founding pastor, Pastor Chuck, a man I admire, 
as a man that my dad views as his own pastor. He wrote a book titled End Times. And what did he do? He predicted that the rapture would happen in 1981. As a matter of fact, he wasn't the only one. Popular American evangelist and Christian author Hal Lindsey also made the same prediction using the same biblical logic in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Many of you of an older generation probably remember it. In 1980, Pastor Chuck reiterated these convictions in a manuscript titled Future Survival. He said, and I quote, I am convinced the Lord will come for his church before the end of 1981, identifying that he could be wrong, but it was a deep conviction in his heart and all of his plans were made predicated upon that belief. Now, not everything you read about Pastor Chuck and the predictions is accurate on the internet, but this is true. And... As I think we're aware, the rapture didn't happen in 1988. Following the embarrassment, though, it it made some guys in Calvary Chapel try to, like, recalculate the math. Wait a second. Generations, 40 years. 1948, 40 years. It should have happened in 1988. I mean, Pastor Chuck said it was going to happen in 19. It sent everybody into a tizzy, and then they reached this conclusion. Well, wait a second. Israel was formed in 1948, but could it be that Jesus' prediction here is not just about the formation of Israel as a state, but also the establishment of Jerusalem as the capital? (gasps) Wait a second. That means that the date we should be working off of is not 1948. It's 1967, which means if you take 40 years from there, you get the into the tribulation, Jesus' second coming happening in 2007. Oh my goodness. Work seven years back. Y2K, the rapture of the church. It's like this perfect blending of end times prophecy. Tragically, they were all wrong. Now there are two problems with this approach. First, you can't actually reach a biblically consistent definition of how many years a generation is. I mean, if you use scripture, yeah, you can find 40 years, give or take. But you should note that the generation of Jews wandering around in the wilderness, remember, after the event at Kadesh Barnea, they, they were actually defined as a 38-year generation. So you have 40 and then you have 38. But then in Genesis 15, a generation is defined as 100 years. Like, you can't actually nail down how many years biblically a generation is supposed to be. Now, that's a problem if you're trying to put dates, pinpoint exact locations and whatnot. The second problem is I think that this, the word that's used here, generation, to, to be defined as a collective age group of people is not the accurate way of interpreting that particular word. In the Greek, it's the word gina which can instead, as being a collective age group of people, can be interpreted instead as a race or a people group, which makes what Jesus is saying read entirely different, right? As a matter of fact, David Guzik, who I admire a lot when it comes to his handling of end times prophecy, he says concerning this passage with this interpretation of generation in mind, he says this very well might be a promise that the Jewish race will not perish, before history comes to a conclusion. And I find that that's probably a more accurate way of reading this, this, this passage. Now, sadly, the act of setting definitive dates for the rapture 
which at this point have all been wrong, false dates for the rapture, have had several negative consequences. And I, and I need to address the negative consequences that come from date setting, whether it's date setting within Calvary Chapel or date setting from others. First, doing this. Well, the negative consequence has been that it's caused many Christians to dismiss all pre-tribulationalists as being Looney Tune date-setting doomsday preppers more interested in leaving planet Earth than reaching a fallen planet with the gospel. I've heard this before, that pre-tribulationalists, you're escapists. And I'm, I'm actually okay with that, knowing what the tribulation is. I hope I can escape it. But it's an, an unintended consequence. Secondly, this false practice of date setting has caused the world to paint Christians in general, especially those who believe in a literal pre-tribulational rapture of the church as being intellectually non-rational weirdos. I mean, that's, that's the unintended consequence. How much airplay did Harold Camping get in 2011 when he made a prediction that the rapture was gonna take place? I mean, it was all over the news. As a matter of fact, it was like, if you were watching the news at that time, you're literally, if you're a non-believer thinking these Christian people are like the Mayans, are like cults, they're crazy. Like, what you're talking about seems nuts. And what? It was laughed at. The only reason Harold Camping got as much playtime on air was because it was easy to crack jokes about him. Matter of fact, I, I probably cracked my own jokes concerning it. Now, the cumulative effect of the first two negative consequences has caused many pastors, sadly, to shy away from, that might not even be the right phrase, to run from the teaching of eschatology from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Pastors don't cover this material anymore. By and large, we run from it, we shy away from it. Why? Because if we talk about it, most people laugh at us, think we're irrational, and dismiss us altogether. Oh, you're one of those date setters. I'm not a date setter. But finally, it's tarred the public image of many solid, godly, wonderful Bible teachers. Pastor Chuck, he admitted, following the embarrassments of the late 80s, that he should have kept to the faithful expositional teaching of the Bible and stayed away from the prediction-making business. I've heard him say, I'm a really good pastor, but I'm a really pathetic prophet. And I'm okay with that. But tragically, this mistake has been used by many critics of Calvary Chapel to diminish our movement and attack a man who truthfully, his ministry should be admired and celebrated. He made one mistake. When the book's written on me as a pastor, if it can be said that I made one mistake, I'll feel pretty good about things. Now, let me explain why I've taken as much time to lay out the consequences of these misconceptions. Because in a sermon on the Olivet Discourse, as a matter of fact, it would be very difficult to call what he did a sermon and very difficult to call it on the Olivet Discourse because he really skimmed through everything and, and overlooked it all. But Mark Driscoll, who is a very popular author, church planner, and pastor of Mars Hill, a man that I admire, who I'm not theologically consistent with, but who I think has done a lot of really good things for Christianity and has pushed a new generation to take some leadership. 
But he said this. He provided this exhortation to his congregation a couple years back. He said, are you overly concerned with the details of Jesus' return? There was a great outpouring and movement of the Holy Spirit in the 60s and 70s. It was called the Jesus Movement, which Calvary Chapel was a part of. It was amazing. It was a miracle of God. A whole generation just seemed to get captured with the love of Jesus. And mass hippies and drug addicts and people who were sexually wayward met Jesus and there was a radical number of salvations. And a huge number of young people became Christians. Nonetheless, what happened with the Jesus movement is I believe it got off track and off course. People started to get really fascinated with the rapture and the end times and the second coming and all these things. And all of a sudden there was a love for Jesus, but there was more of a fascination around dates and times and events and circumstances. All of a sudden, leaders began making predictions about when Jesus will return, the signs accompanying his coming. They were taking the Bible and taking the nightly news and combining them together. And it led to a short-sightedness. Some key leaders, even some who love Jesus and our brothers in Christ, started predicting the end of the world and sending their followers into a frenzy. None of that's helpful. Are you overly interested, concerned, consumed with the details of his return? Are you reading too many books about the end of the world, neglecting the needs of the world? Are you trying to predict things when Jesus says elsewhere, no one knows the day or the hour? Are you overly concerned? Some of you are overly concerned and obsessed with the details, have very strong opinions about these things that have not yet happened, and that's going too far. Now, I understand Mark Driscoll's exhortation and criticism. I've been critical of Pastor Chuck in this very Bible study. I agree that mistakes have been made by previous generations of church leaders when they started making predictions. However, I completely 100% disagree with the core premise that we shouldn't be deeply concerned with the rapture of the church. And this is what Mark Driscoll does. He does it not just with eschatology, he does it with a lot of things. That he looks at mistakes made where the church goes too far one direction. And what does he do a lot of times? He swings back the entire other extreme direction when the truth is somewhere in the middle. Here's my point. The reality of scripture is that the imminent return of Jesus for the church, the rapture, and the end time scenario that follows, it's so foundational to Christianity that it is the most principal, dominant, discussed doctrine in the entire New Testament. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with the rapture or the end time scenario that follows. Mark Driscoll says we shouldn't be overly concerned. Then why is the Bible overly concerned? Why does the Bible exhort us over and over and over again to watch and to pray and to have an expectancy? Not only the Bible, but Jesus himself, as we'll see in a moment, exhorts us to the same kind of behavior, to watch and to pray for his coming. And why is this the case? Because these concepts, yes, these prophetic concepts, if approached in a balanced and appropriate way, they provide the exact amount of motivation that the church needs 
to be active and engaged in the world around us. Knowing what's coming in the future should help me prioritize what I emphasize today. We've made this point before. And in doing so, I think that if I'm looking and watching and praying for the coming of Jesus, if I am interested in it and concerned about it, then what should it do? Should it lead me to be neglectful to a fallen world? No, not as Mark says. I think it should produce within my heart a passion and a love for the loss that I'm motivated to do even more than I was doing previously because I know it's coming. I think that this reaction to prediction making has led the church to go too far where we're not even teaching it and we're running from the ideas when the Bible presents them clearly. Verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is discussing, you have to ask, what day, day, is Jesus referring to? And there seems to be three subtle clues. First, it's a day that no one can predict. A day that only the Father knows. Not even the Son, or the angels, or anyone else. This is a day that's coming that only the Father knows when it will happen. Now, according to Daniel's prophecies, seven years of tribulation begin with a signing of a false peace. We know when it begins, when the clock starts, so we can extrapolate out seven years, meaning that this day can't be the second coming of Christ. Why? Because once I see the signing of the false peace, I can go out seven years and tell you the day no one knows the day or the hour, but I could tell you the day when Jesus is coming back. Not only that, but it can't be this abomination of desolation. Because once again, at a signing of the false peace, I can go out 300, uh, I can go out three years, three and a half years, and pinpoint the exact day that the Antichrist will go into the temple and the abomination of desolation takes place. This eliminates, because no one can predict the second coming of the abomination. Now, the second clue is that this is a day whereby Jesus promises escape from judgment. Now, you don't actually get that from Mark's account, but Luke chapter 21, the same section of scripture, he says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all the things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Note, it's not a day where Jesus will come, but a day that we will escape. And what will happen? See, at the end, the second coming, what takes place? Jesus comes to earth and he gathers the elect. But in this instance, it can't be describing that. Why? Because we escape to go with him. It's an entirely different scenario. So one can only reason logically that this also eliminates the beginning of the tribulational period as well. Why? Because it's a day that promises escape. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not wrath, but salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial 
that shall be coming upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So first, no man can predict the day or the hour of this day that Jesus is referring to. Secondly, it's a day where Jesus promises escape from judgment. Thirdly, it's a day that Jesus exhorts the disciples to be prepared for. And a sermon that's been dealing entirely with the nation of Israel. And this instance, according to Luke, Jesus does something very distinct. He personalizes these words, not for Israel, but it seems as though he personalizes them specifically for his disciples. Watch, you watch, you pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things. I've been dealing with Israel. Now I've got an exhortation for you. It's the conclusion of a sermon. And take heed, verse 33. Watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Matthew actually interjects at this point and tells us that the conditions for this day will be very similar to the conditions that we find as in the day of Noah. This day will be, Jesus continues, like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, I am convinced that the only day, the only event that fits Jesus' description and remains consistent with the rest of Scripture is the rapture of the church. Can't be the beginning of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, or even the second coming of Christ. It is a day no one can predict, a day whereby Jesus promises escape from judgment, and a day that the disciples should be actively prepared and watching for. Now let me tie it all together, because I think there's something significant here that we overlook. You hear it said all the time, and I laugh at it. This generation is the closest generation to the coming of Jesus. And you're kind of like, well, duh. It's not the last one, because there's the next one. And like, guess what the next generation will say? We're the closest generation to the coming of Christ. Like, like you hear it all the time. Like prophecy updates, and like we get together, and like we're trying to connect the dots, and trying to, to work things out. We're trying to like like we're really close, man. We're really close. It's gonna happen. It's gonna be this generation. There was a time my dad, he was teaching through these passages, and back at the old building, down Second Street, Stone Mountain, uh, trains. There was a train close by. And he was in the middle of his prayer, just got done teaching about the rapture. And he's praying, Lord, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come. We're waiting for you. And all of a sudden, he heard this big blast of a horn. And he was like, oh, what's happening? It's going to happen. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, that blast of a horn, when they all didn't disappear, was followed with a chicka, 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 chicka. Like we get together and we talk about this and we say, well, we're going to be it. And I think a lot of it's silly, except, except, check it out. Though no man knows the day or the hour when Jesus will call the church to himself, 
And making predictions is silly. And the rapture as a concept is imminent. It can happen at any point. It's not predicated upon any events. It does seem, if you connect these passages of scripture here, these two parables, that Jesus is presenting the re-emergence of the nation of Israel as a radical and critical indicator that according to his own words, things are happening soon, that he's at the door. When Jesus says that the fig tree blooms, what should that tell us if we're following in line with what Jesus is teaching? That yes, we are closer than ever. Not just because it's just another day down the line, but because something has happened that makes our generation, that makes this present world scenario different than the 1800 years previously. Israel is a nation with a homeland, with borders, with defense. More things are, are aligning today than ever before. So, you should be ready. You should be prepared. You should, as Jesus concludes the sermon with, you should watch and not be idle. But according to the parable, to be working. With this in mind, consider the point of the parable we just read in light of the imminent coming of Jesus, the rapture. Jesus, the master, while he's away, what has he done? He's done two things. He's given authority to his servants with this specific commission to faithfully fulfill each his work. First, before leaving, Jesus gave authority to his servants. The master of the house commissioned the church, his disciples, his followers, to go into the world with the gospel, to reach the lost, to make disciples of the nation. And this idea of authority, it's not just that he sends you out haphazardly. The idea presents more of like he's authorized you to do so. He's deputized you. It's as though Jesus says, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. Now you go into the world and here, I'm gonna give you a little medal. I'm deputy, raise your right hand. Now go, you're going as ambassadors. You have uh, the authority, the influence, the power of me. You're going as my representatives. So go and be active and do it. He gave authority to his servants and then the Holy Spirit. He, he deputized them, right? Go into the world, the gospel. But then Jesus does something interesting, doesn't he? It's, it's almost like, go into the world. And he's like, before you go into the world, go to Jerusalem and just chill out. Like, don't go into the world yet. That's the ultimate plan, but something's gotta happen first. So you just go chill. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out and they're filled with power. And then they begin moving. He's deputized you. He's given you authority as his representative. But second, and I love this, and this is so apt for our church. He also gave to each his work. Each servant has his work to do. And guess what? Each servant, because you've been wired differently, you each have different work. Jesus gives you authority, but he also gives each of us a job. 
a task, a ministry, authority, and a work. Now, my question is, as a servant of Jesus, what's your work? You know, we think of the authority, we think of the Great Commission, we think of these things in very broad strokes, but Jesus gets very personally. To each his work, you as a servant have a work. You have a job. As a servant, what is it? Guess what? I can't tell you that. As a matter of fact, like the entire ministry model of Calvary 316 is very simple. Our job is to equip you to go out and fulfill your work. It's to equip you with, 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 with the word. It's to give you an opportunity to spend time in prayer and worship, to rally together for encouragement. But when it's all said and done, you've been given authority. Your church is here to provide equipping, but you have to go out and fulfill a work. Each of you. Do you view your job as a mission field? Do you think that God, I mean, really think about it for a moment. Do you think God created you, wired you, formed you, knew you before the foundations of the world? And then because you were a moron, had to die to redeem you. But he did it all because he loves you. Do you think after all that, like your work is to fix people's toilets? That might be your job. But do you really think that, that, that Jesus died on the cross so that you could go fix people's toilets or build pools or work at the correction facility? or work on a farm, or whatever it happens to be. Now, you do those things because you're gifted there. But you're there because your gifts, the job, is a means to a greater end. Why? Because as servants, each has been given a work. Now, moms, your work are those snotty-nosed kids. That's your ministry. Not just limited to that, but that is. And husbands, it's your wives. And what should be the motivation for being a good steward? For, for, for in the authority given to us and the work provided, what should be our motivation to do it with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our energy, with all of our mind, with all of our focus? What should be our motivation it's his soon and imminent return. Anticipating and preparing for Jesus' return, the effect that it should have is that it makes us faithful servants. The rapture, it should purify our lives. Knowing Jesus can come at any moment. Do you really want your story for all of eternity? Hey man, where were you when Jesus came back? You know, as a servant, the king came, he called you. Where were you? Well, I had a stripper ministry. It's hard for me to explain all that, but like I had a ministry to the strip club. Like that doesn't fly. Like where do you want to be? You see the rapture, Jesus coming, it should have a purifying effect, but it should also provide a sense of urgency. And so in concluding our entire study here of the Olivet Discourse, we close with that exhortation. 
Your king is coming. You're a servant. He's given you authority and power. First, do you know what your work is? Do you know what it is? What God wants you to do? Pray. Lord, what do you want me to do? And secondly, shut up and start doing it. Jesus is coming. Time is short. I don't know about you. I want to hear more than anything, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your rest. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.